Hello and welcome to Overinvested, a podcast about pop culture obsessions. I'm Morgan Lee Davies and this is my co-host Gavia Baker-Whitelaw. Hello. So this week we are discussing Booksmart, the new teen comedy directed by Olivia Wilde. Beanie Feldstein and Caitlin Dever star as two ambitious teens who worked hard through high school and realized they've wasted their senior year by failing to party. Determined to make up for lost time, they spend the last night before graduation trying to have as much fun as possible. So I saw this movie yesterday, and it ruled. It was great. I had a really, really fun it's time. It's just a very entertaining movie. Yes. There was a pretty good-sized uh, crowd by theater for like a matinee on a Saturday, which was nice. And everyone fucking loved it. There was a lot of laughter in the crowd. It was really, really fun. It was all like millennials of roughly our age having a great time laughing about Gen Z teenagers. And I was like, excellent. Good. Yeah. <laughs> it's like our, our audience was, I mean, I don't really know demographically what it was. So I wasn't really paying attention. I think it was mostly young people. But like, I did notice that about a third of the way through an elderly couple walked out and I was like, this is someone who has seen a poster with lots of five-star reviews and not looked up what the movie is actually about. <laughs> because this film obviously is like, it, it's kind of one of these movies which is sort of being discussed in like film Twitter critic circles as being like very poorly advertised. In the UK, this film like barely exists. There are billboards for this movie, but I feel like it's not part of the cultural consciousness. And in the US, there's been a lot of like film discourse about... <laughs> how it's been marketed and the fact that it's not making any fucking money because essentially the pitch is this is the female version of Superbad, which is kind of a shallow way of describing it, but it's also, you know, a fairly obvious comparison. And it is not making money, but also the advertising campaign was quite bad and it had like a weird marketing slogan it had they were like posters that said something like prepare to be consensually bashed or something which is technically a line from the movie but like doesn't make any sense as a slogan so this film is hilarious and everyone who's actually watched it loves it and it's getting rave reviews but it's kind of it's suffering from the good old don't know how to sell a lady movie problem (laughs) yes also i i do think they perhaps made some errors in the release strategy. I I mean, it's coming out right next to Aladdin and Rocketman, the Elton John movie. (laughs) Well, Rocketman only made like 22 million this weekend, which was not huge either. It's going to ramp up though. But Aladdin is a behemoth, which, you know, (sighs) but Booksmart is starring two non-famous people. And... Olivia Wilde is obviously a famous actress, but isn't like a known director. This is her first movie. It's also a teen movie that young teens can't watch because it's R-rated. Correct. And so I think opening it wide was not wise. There were some mistakes were made, let's just say. Uh, it made $8 million the first weekend, which isn't like it totally bombed, but it definitely underperformed. However, I think this is definitely destined to be a movie that gets watched like a zillion times yes. on Netflix. Also, they released it on Netflix internationally in, in many countries. Obviously, somewhere like the UK would be in theaters. But that means that smart teens who can get around nation restrictions on Netflix can just watch it on Netflix. And that's how all the teens watch everything is on Netflix. So once this hits Netflix in the US, I really think it's going to be like a big hit with the young people as opposed yeah. to like millennials like us who were at the theater. I was... And one of the things that I found so charming about this film is that it is completely a Gen Z movie in a way that felt extremely specific 
to me as someone who is not Gen Z, but who has a brother who is and just like has, you know, I mean, there was literally one of the kids from the Who Drew the Dicks Netflix show was in this. American Vandal. Oh, yeah. American Vandal, which we do actually have a podcast episode on. Um, but yeah, it has like one of the like secondary characters from that. And I kind of, I was like, oh, well done. He's doing well. And then I looked him up and he has like 4 million IMDb credits. So it's like, okay, he's actually doing great. <laughs> yeah. And I just kept thinking, one of those sort of pleasurable things about watching it for me was that it, like, I did not have this experience in high school. But obviously it reminded me of being a teenager in certain ways, because that's the point of movies like this. But it also made me think of the ways that being a teenager now is like hugely different from being a teenager yes. when we were teenagers. And part it's of that also is... It's very chill to be gay in this movie. Well, like, yes. Yeah. Exactly. This film is... Because there's a lot of there's a lot of like movies which are kind of marketed as queer movies, as we all know. And sort of then there's all this kind of discourse about like, when will a mainstream movie, like a Disney franchise or whatever, finally have a queer character? And it's like, there's so many different levels of the way this is being treated. And in this... It's just like a realistic portrayal of if you are living in many places in America and you're 18 years old, it's very chill to be gay and it doesn't matter. Because like of the main characters in this, one of them is a lesbian and one of them is straight and they're best friends and it's not a big deal because it's not a big deal. Right. <laughs> and, and then you have like tertiary characters who are gay or kind of ambiguous or whatever. Right. And like there are a couple of sort of comic relief sort of theater theater kids who are very kind of over the top campy gay like guys who are very, very recognizable types. <laughs> very and, familiar. <laughs> yeah, and they were really, really funny. And like those kids exist, as we all know. And it they were they were hilarious. The actors did a really good job. But I just was thinking, like, oh my God, this didn't exist when we were that age. When I was in high school, there was one kid who was a year or two younger than I was, who was out and gay at our school. And I remember it not being a huge deal, but he was the only one. Like that was it. And later, you know, years after graduation, you know, I'd meet up with people and then we'd be like, oh, yeah, so-and-so turned out to be gay. And you'd be like, oh, that totally makes sense. Like, of course. But it wasn't something that happened at the time. And now it's just such a different world in a way that, of course, is, like, good. But it was so interesting to watch in this movie as, like, an old person and be like, oh, my God. Like, wow. The times have changed. <laughs> Jesus Christ. And the central relationship between these two characters, one of whom is a lesbian, as you say, is obviously the central point of the movie, but also the fact that that just like isn't a big deal to them. And Beanie Feldstein, who plays the straight character, who was also in, um, played the best friend in Lady Bird, is really, really encouraging of her friend and like wants her to sort of go after this girl she has a crush on and is like teases her about this all the time and they talk about like masturbation and at one point they watch like lesbian porn and it was just really really funny <laughs> I like I the part like, where oh. she was like joking about like her friend's first crushes because she was like oh yeah you know there's this trajectory where it's like your first crush was like the really girly cat from the aristocats and then she had a crush on Avril Lavigne and now she has a crush on this girl in school who's played by a professional skateboarder she's not like an actress which is why she looks like that yeah. <laughs> um, <laughs> Because I was like, this is a very tattooed high schooler. Um, yeah. But um, and I was just like, there was something like so authentic to me about someone being like, ah, yes, I realized I was gay because I had a crush on like the really femme cat and the rest of cats. <laughs> oh my God. Yeah. Um, but yeah, like, I think, I feel like the two concerns, right? Like when you're going to a movie like this, it's like, A, is there going to be like a subplot where they have to like 
signpost either the an idea that the lesbian character has a crush on her straight friend or they have to like do a, a scene where it's like don't worry I'm not like watching you get changed and also like the concern of there being a fat joke if there is an overweight main character in the movie right neither of those things happen they do not even slightly happen and I was just like this is relaxing <laughs> yes it's so not a concern either of those things like at all and I was just like oh Thank God. Like, thank you. And that's the sort of thing where having an all-female creative team, it's like Olivia Wilde wrote this, and then there was... Uh, She directed it. Yes, Olivia Wilde directed this, excuse me. And um, then there was a team of female writers. This script had been around for a long time, like a... a Yeah, it was like two writers wrote wrote kind of the original one, and it was on the blacklist in 2009, got picked up, and it kind of went through various processes until a couple of other writers came in and worked on it for the final version with Olivia Wilde. So Katie Silberman wound up doing the final draft and she's worked on a number of movies recently, including Set It Up, which she wrote, which was the Netflix rom-com that I thought was abysmal last year. It was like, okay. I really, really didn't like it. And I didn't think the script was particularly smart or sharp, which is interesting because... Well, this film was very improv and... Olivia Wilde, like, encouraged the cast to rewrite their dialogue as well. Yes, and she's talked in interviews about doing improv, and they they clearly did that, but it doesn't feel like one of those Apatow movies where you can tell that he just put the camera on someone and was like, just let go for, like, five minutes, just knock yourself out. So there's kind of the way that American comedy movies get shot is, like, kind of what Morgan's describing, where it's, like, extremely dialogue-focused, and kind of the camera is just there as a vehicle to transmit the marvelous genius of the usually former SNL cast members who are in the main cast, right? So one of the directors that people often bring up is Edgar Wright, um, the British director who did the Cornetto trilogy, and then he kind of went on to he went on to do Baby Driver, which like I do not like, but whatever. Uh, so he does like a fuck ton of very visual comedy as well as having loads of just straight up like punchline jokes in the dialogue. Um, and that's also something you see with Taika Waititi, who's very visual. And that is kind of not a very common thing to see in sort of like mainstream comedy movies, which are either really improv heavy or are kind of just about hiring really funny actors to deliver comedy punchline type dialogue, right? And in this movie, there are lots of jokes and punchlines, but like it does look like a kind of a fun teen indie movie where they've really thought about what it looks like and there's kind of some interesting cinematography there's this one scene in a pool which everyone is talking about a lot because it's like very beautiful and it kind of has this symbolism and what have you you know whatever you know it's got kind of pretty good production design which is not always a concern with comedy movies in general where it's just kind of set in like a, a real environment right well it is really well directed visually i think i think it's very smart in that way both the production design and the cinematography it just feels very tight but the th- interesting thing about the improv to me is that it doesn't feel improv I don't think. It feels written because the jokes are really fucking funny. Like, this is a movie with funny jokes that are smart. And yes. so I think they cannot possibly all have been improv Like, no matter how smart no, no, the cast no way, is, right? No way. I think it was like they had input into the later part of the writing right. process. I would just love to have sort of been a fly on the wall for the process of how all of this was constructed because well, what you want is a convention panel with the writing and directing team of this movie <laughs> yeah but no one ever tells the truth in those things no. so um but it's just it's just interesting because olivia wilde 
didn't write this as such, but she was attached to it for a long time and developed it. And I think this is clearly a good example of a movie where, you know, the director and the writer are sort of creating the thing together. And then also the actors are having input and it clearly was a genuinely collaborative thing, you know? Also, I I read a couple of interviews with Olivia Wilde who before now I obviously just thought of as an actress and I was like vaguely aware she was you know she was engaged to Prince at one point which is like one of her claims to fame and now I'm just like I have so much respect for her as a filmmaker she sounds so great really (laughs) nurturing and (laughs) yes it's always interesting when someone like that completely changes your view of them I mean I didn't have a strong opinion of her either way like she just yeah I mean I I watched several seasons of House right (laughs) exactly (laughs) I mean, I never had any bad thoughts about her. She just sort of was there. And it really makes you wonder about all the things that people would really like to be doing but haven't been given the opportunity to do. Yeah. I mean, it kind of sounds like she, the the thing that held her back, according to her, is like she thought that she couldn't be a director because she hadn't gone to film school. And then she kind of had the same realization that many actor turned directors have, which is actually I have a lot more experience than a lot of people who've gone to film school because you've been watching directors work and that includes watching bad directors so you can kind of be like this is how not to do it (laughs) yes so this movie is kind of about the two main characters of this very specific Hermione Grangerish try hard female nerd right extremely rigorously academic and that is something that Olivia Wilde says was like very much part of her childhood like she went to you know she went to like a rich person academic school where everyone was very much expected to go to an Ivy League and that is kind of the vibe here although the school itself is not generally like a super academic school it's more just like everyone is expected to go to an Ivy League and most of the people there are very rich which is kind of something that Morgan told me apparently is part of the conversation about the movie and is definitely something I was thinking about while I was watching because like the key turning point of the film at the beginning is when the main character played by Beanie Feldstein, Molly, uh, she is like, oh fuck, like I've spent my entire school career trying so hard and like doing everything perfectly. And it turns out that like all the party wastrels have also got into, you know, Harvard or whatever. And she's like, fuck, I've wasted my high school years. And my immediate thought watching this was like, they're rich they have paid to get into the ivy league which is like never kind of commented on in the movie but i feel like is intentionally or unintentionally a really strong subtext because like you see her house and her friend's house and they're just like normal smallish houses like molly you never meet her parents but i think the implication is she's got a single mother who's just always at work because you never see her and there's just like notes on the fridge and stuff And then, like, when you see the other people's houses, you know, one of them is, like, can hire, like, a yacht for their party and someone else is, like, the other's living in these massive palaces in Los Angeles. So it's, like, the reason they have to work hard is because they can't pay their way into college. (laughs) Well, this was my one criticism of the movie, and I found it kind of bizarre, actually, that they didn't didn't handle this better. Yeah. Because clearly, you, you are correct that the reason these people would get into these schools would be family connections and money and whatever and one of the massive lawsuit has very clearly highlighted correct (laughs) like and obviously that happened after this movie came out not that the things weren't happening but like the fact that this is in the public eye makes it even more in your brain when you're watching it right and one of the kids when um molly winds up having this conversation when she finds this out and the reason that she doesn't know is that you know, they come up with this excuse is that, you know, people don't say where they're going to college at the school until the end of the year. And so she confronts these these kids in the bathroom and um, 
one of them says he's going to play soccer at Stanford or something. And um, that, sure, right? Like, obviously, that happens all the time, is that kids get recruited to play sports at schools that they are not academically qualified to attend. Uh, there was a kid in my high school who had a C average who got recruited by Brown University to play football, and he left after one week. So we all assumed that he had sexually assaulted someone. America is great. Gosh. Uh, um, but then the other kids she's talking to, like one of them says he's not going to college, he's going to go code for Google. And then the other girl says she got like a 1560 on her SATs, which is an outrageously high score. That is higher than I got on my SATs. You like the SATs are stupid, but you cannot be dumb and get a 1560. Like you, mm-hmm. you gotta be smart. And so the implication is that those kids did wind up getting to those things, meaning Google and Yale, not based on pure privilege, but because they actually were smart too and they just also got to party and it would have and it does kind of illustrate one of those like high school things where the reverse snobbery of people who think they're outsiders not like humanizing the quote-unquote popular kids and realizing that they can be smart and achieve stuff too right and i think that there wind up being like there's a scene with the the girl with the sat score um at the end of the movie who also like there's a sort of nickname that they all have for her about I mean, she's the skill slut. Right, exactly. And there's a scene with her and Molly at the end of the movie where Molly is sort of forced to realize that having characterized her in this way has been kind of cruel that I thought was really good. But it just seemed like such an obvious thing to acknowledge why this would be happening, meaning the college acceptances. And it wouldn't mean that you couldn't still humanize these other kids, right? Um, Because then the rest of the movie they wind up acting like rich idiots. Like, that's how they're characterized for the rest of the yeah. film. It's just, like, rich dummies. I and mean, they are definitely rich. Cruel. Like, they, they're, it's funny, and you wind up being like, oh, these kids. But, like, they're clearly outrageously wealthy in a way that the movie is definitely aware of and kind of critiquing. Like, the, the one really, really funny, sad kid who, who rents out the yacht for the party clearly has just like a gazillion dollars and no friends and so he'll do things like rent out a yacht for a party that no one attends. I don't really identify with any of the characters in this film particularly or any film. (laughs) It's not really a way I experience fiction but like um, I did go to school where like it was kind of mostly quite rich kids it was quite a posh school. It was also like the academic expectations were high, but there was also like a divide to a certain extent between people whose parents had been paying to send them there since they were like four and people who'd passed an entrance exam when they were older, um, like me. <laughs> so, but like, I remember when I was 12, um, some kid in my class had a 12th birthday party, which was this huge blowout party. But I remember his parents had made him sign a contract that he wouldn't have like a big expensive party until he was 18. And I was just like, oh, okay, your parents made you sign a contract? Even at the age of 12, I was like, you're going to fucking regret this weird thing. And also that's a strange way to parent. <laughs> that is bizarre. Yeah. And, and one of my actual friends, like a few years later, did have one of these huge parties. He, he, I mean, his parents were like millionaires who were never there. But like, it was one of these parties which he advertised on MySpace and charged entry and hired security for. <laughs> It was in the news because like 500 kids showed up and I just remember showing up and being like, what the fuck is this? <laughs> it's like I, I lived in tenements. So I was like, well, this is a strange, strange cultural moment we're living in here. <laughs> yes. 
so the conversation about the, that issue in this movie, like there have been people saying, you know, like, well, it's unreasonable to expect they would have to do this. Like movies can't do everything, blah, blah, blah. But obviously the main point of comparison for this is Lady Bird, which they're, they're very different movies in many ways, but like yeah. people wind up comparing them because they do have certain obvious similarities and like Beanie Feldstein is in both of them, which doesn't mean that they're the same, but they're both California movies and they both are about this, you know, sort of end of high school. With college admissions, like the obsession with getting into the right school. And that movie handles class in an incredibly smart way. It's not the main focus of the movie, but like Lady Bird in that film is from a sort of middle-class, lower middle-class family. And it's really insecure about the fact that there are these people at her school who have, you know, much nicer houses and a lot more money. And she sort of lies and pretends that, she is one of those people and it's just um a really smart way of depicting sort of the anxieties around that issue when you're that age and this movie it did feel like a sort of blind spot and I loved the rest of the movie and so I really wish they had done that and I don't think it would have taken a lot of work but then it did make me feel like when they're going around to these other like ridiculous rich person houses like there was just something a little bit missing that being said some of the houses were pretty funny the one that was particularly humorous was um they're trying to find this like cool party that they really want to attend to be like we've gone to the cool party and they keep getting kind of diverted to other people's parties first the the empty yacht which is sad and then the sort of theater kids are having like a murder mystery party where everyone plays a role and they wind up there and that was really quite humorous to me, it's also at this kid's like outrageous, huge house, and he's like ruling, ruling his <laughs> kingdom, and um, his family is like in the kitchen playing cards, like, waiting for him to be done with this ridiculous situation, and then they wind up at the like cool one finally later, and it was quite funny, but it did feel like there was something a little bit missing, um, which is fine. It's you know, yeah, but. That was my one complaint. We should also talk about Billy Lord. In this. Oh my god, she's so good. Oh, I love, I love her. Oh. So I don't think I'd ever seen her like properly acting in anything. Well, neither of us watch American Horror Story. Right. This is Carrie Fisher's daughter who has, has a very small part in... The new Star Wars movies. Yes. And I knew she acted in stuff, but I didn't, I hadn't seen her in anything. And so I think I kind of had always been like... Yeah, she's Carrie Fisher's daughter, so she kind of just like shows up and stuff. Because I'd heard she was very funny. Because people, I've heard people being like, "Yes, she's a very good comedy actress." And in this movie, you're just like, she's got kind of the scene stealing role where it's like her, her. She just keeps showing up. She's this very weird rich girl who's not like the popular girl. She's like very wacky, and you know she thinks she's psychic and stuff. And she's this very over the top character who just like appears everywhere. And she's just like such a charming presence. <laughs> oh my god, she is so fucking funny. And clearly older than a high schooler. I mean, all of these kids oh, yeah, are older she's than high like, schoolers. Yeah, she's like 26. <laughs> but like she very obviously is in a way that was quite funny. And um, she's like stoned all the time. And is just saying like weird shit. She like jumps off the boat. She was fucking hilarious. And I wish I could remember like one of her jokes or something. But this again was, I thought, I really did think that the biggest strength of the movie, like, the relationship between the girls was wonderful and not something you see in movies basically ever. We obviously talked about the sort of queer element that was 
I wouldn't, I don't want to say unique, but certainly very uncommon, especially in a mainstream movie. And that was great. But I really think the best part of this movie was the, was the jokes. Like they were just so sharp and she was so funny and it's just really hard to make a film that funny. It's difficult. And this movie was hilarious. Like everyone in the theater was laughing so hard the whole time. And I was just really impressed by I that. I was like, I was like curled up in my seat sometimes. I was like, ah! <laughs> I really, so this movie has like such a good example of a rape joke. Like it has yes. such a good rape joke in it. Because like, there's this point where like they've run out of charge their phones and they're like desperate to like get somewhere and they figure out they need to ask this pizza, pizza delivery driver where to go next, right? Because they're idiot teenagers. They decide they're going to like, mug him basically so they try to attack him in his car and obviously they fail and he's like what are you doing do you not understand that you're now locked in a car with a strange man and like I'm armed and you guys don't need like and he's just like being really helpful and is sort of like highlighting all this like really obvious stuff that they're not picking up on because they're just like hyped up on trying to get to this party and then the punchline at the end of the movie is that he actually is a serial killer (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> and I was like, and it was like, I was, afterwards, I was just thinking back on this. And I was like, that is such like a perfect illustration of being that age. Because you are like aware of the danger because you are a woman who lives in society. And also because you're being told every two and a half seconds that you shouldn't go outside alone. But at the same time, your brain hasn't finished cooking yet. So you're like a dumbass, right? And when I think about like all the incredibly dangerous stuff that I did as a teenager and like a young adult, and I'm just like, definitely could have been raped and murdered at that point. But it's also kind of funny at the same time. Yeah. Whereas now as an adult, if I am in that same kind of danger, which is much much less so because I'm no longer an idiot teenager, I am genuinely just like, this is really frightening and disturbing. But I'm like, there were definitely points like as a teenager where my friends and I were like some some creepo man was trying to kidnap us or something, you know? And then it's just funny and harmless because you don't know what's going on. <laughs> yep. Which honestly is just as well because yes, yes. your brain, brain can't protects it. itself. Yes. But like this was like a really great just like depiction of, it, it just made the joke seem so harmless, but it was also like quite a dark joke. <laughs> yeah. Well, it's because you don't find out until the end. Yeah, because yeah. at the time you're just like, this guy is like actually being helpful. <laughs> right. Yeah, and so then you can sort of metabolize the joke in a way that's just funny because yeah. it's sort of a delayed reaction, right? I thought that was absolutely hilarious. Really, really, really good. Um, I'm trying to remember if there was anything else in particular. So there was like one joke which I was just like making me cringe. The two girls have this pact basically where if they say a code word, the other one has to just do whatever they say. So it's like Molly is kind of the more like the alpha of the relationship where she's all like telling Amy what to do and it's sort of dragging her to these parties and Amy is a bit more shy, right? And they get to the point where she says this code word to like make her go to the next party instead of going home. The code word is Malala. I know. <laughs> and I was oh just God. like, and I was like in agony because like these characters, they're such a time period culturally specific satire of a certain kind of like American mainstream like well-meaning white feminism (laughs) so like the movie opens with like Beanie Feldstein is listening to this audiobook all about being a powerful overachieving woman and like there's a poster of Ruth Bader Ginsburg in her house and they're both like trying so hard and like she wants to be a Supreme Court justice and they're both like politically self-aware but they're also 18 Right, And I was just like, it's so kind of clueless and insensitive to be like, you have to go to this party with me, just like Malala. <laughs> just, it's just like, oh, this is ag-. like, And I was kind of thinking, 
probably some teens are going to watch this movie and like adopt that and then in five years time are going to be like that's really embarrassing and it's just sort of the perfect note because yep. the fact is that like at the age of 18 as like a suburban white teenager you're not going to have like a perfect attitude to politics because you're just mopping stuff up from your educational picture book of inspirational women <laughs> right yeah i i fully agree i it made me go like oh but also i was like yeah those girls would 100 <laughs> percent do that like that's correct yeah the whole collage of like rbg and like uh, Michelle Obama and I think it was Eleanor Roosevelt is like on a devotional candle and there was something else and I was like oh god like this is just yeah it's like there were the kind of the, the, the pep talk to, for like Molly trying to get Amy to like skip their original like boring nerd plans at the beginning and she's like would Susan B. Anthony have done this and it was like what are you talking about <laughs> nonsense oh my god it was yeah it was really funny as a, as a teenage girl who was... I was, like, not that extreme at all. But as someone who grew up with, like, a feminist American history teacher mother, it was enough that I was like, I understand where this is coming from. <laughs> like, I could, I could see it, and I was like, yeah. This, I mean, I really can't sense. relate with the idea of trying hard at anything at that age. Like, that was just antithetical to my mindset. Um, <laughs> but I feel like quite a lot of my friends at school who were very good girls who tried hard would probably identify with this <laughs> I mean I worked my ass off in high school needless to say but I my personality has always been like if I don't care about something I find it very hard to yeah. make an effort for my the classes I liked you know like English or history or French I worked like a crazy person but for like math and science which I never cared about it was difficult for me to be motivated I just didn't do them. I was like you can't make me and I didn't. Well, so. that's not an option in the American yeah, school we have, system. Yeah, we have different so. school systems. Yeah. Yeah. I'd be interested to see kind of what the British version of this movie would be, because I feel like there's so much focus, I mean, realistically, but there is so much focus in this kind of American movie with college admissions, yes. which is just not a thing. I mean, obviously, people care about what university they get into, but the idea of kind of the equivalent of the Ivy League here is Oxford and Cambridge. And really the only people who go to Oxford and Cambridge are genuinely extremely academic people and the very posh. The money's different and like the country's smaller and whatever. Yeah. And it's just not something that people are, people have that much emphasis on, you know? <laughs> well, no, it's completely different. I mean, in the UK, you're limited to five schools yes. that you apply you to. Five and schools. Like... In Scotland, you can go to university free. <laughs> so yeah, it, you know, there's one form. It's all very standardized. You do it through... Like, I mean, it's just, it's completely different. Whereas here, like, I think kids in the sort of private or sort of like posh or public schools will apply to like 15 plus colleges. You have to have all these crazy extracurricular activities. Yeah, the amount of work that you guys have to do just always seems just ridiculous to me. Because like, and also like when I hear kind of just anecdotes from my American friends about like the relationships you have to form with your teachers and all of the kind of extracurricular stuff you do. And I was just like, well, I mean, I played a musical instrument in high school and I kind of lackadaisically was a scout. I did do my camping and what have you. So I was a well-rounded teen, I presume. But like, it was like, who, I mean, what? Like, <laughs> I mean, I don't think I spoke to a single teacher the whole time I was in high school. <laughs> well, the, it's, it's also like you, you don't know how much the, the stuff matters. Yeah, because it's all I, witchcraft. Right, and like, I heard from from sort of different people that like sometimes they just like don't read the teacher recommendations at all, which is like 
<laughs> and like I, of course, got great teacher recommendations because I was a fucking teacher's pet from the age of five. But if you're just like a normal person, you have to have two people do those for you. And like, what do you do? I mean, it's just, it's the whole thing is nonsense. But uh, but this movie was good. So yes. go see it if you have not already. Yeah, I really, really did enjoy it. It made me think a lot about like when we did um, 10 Things I Hate About You uh, a month or so ago, we were sort of talking about how that genre of like teen movie kind of doesn't exist so much anymore. And obviously this is different from that movie in that like that's definitely a a romance teen movie. And this is I mean, this is more in kind of like for R-rated teen movies, you know, something like Fast Times at Bridgemont High is more along these lines. So it's kind of like, it's somewhere between Superbad, which I've not seen and will never see, and Fast Times at Ridgemont High. Yes. But it definitely does feel to me like a teen movie in a sort of classical sense. So that was really refreshing to me because I don't think they make very many of them anymore. No. And, And obviously it's, unlike most of those other films in that it's completely about the female teen experience from people who you know experienced it themselves like actual actual friends like friends who enjoy each other's company and the whole movie is about how much they like each other i know (laughs) and they're like constantly like pumping up each other's confidence like they kind of (laughs) like when girls just like compliment each other's like amazingness and it's just like this is very funny <laughs> the one of the best gags is that like when they put their outfits on and then see each other they're just like oh my god oh my god you're so amazing you're so beautiful like this and they're what both is wearing this? like shapeless blue jumpsuits <laughs> and so they're doing this at one point and they just sort of change into outfits in their cool teacher's car and they're standing right outside of the car and teachers play by jessica williams and they're doing their whole their whole routine and she's just looking at them like what the fuck is happening like what is going on <laughs> And I was like, oh, yeah, nerds. <laughs> but uh, yeah, I really was charmed by it. Um, I would highly recommend going and seeing it. It's obviously a movie that will be super fun for like groups of teens forever to watch on their TVs. But I did enjoy seeing it with an audience a lot. It was fun. It's to, nice to laugh know. in a group. Yep. So I would recommend seeing it in a theater if that's an option for you. It was it was good. So as usual, we do have like a normal episode coming up next week. But also if you follow us on Patreon, we are doing a mini episode on Rocketman, which we both absolutely loved. That movie is so fucking entertaining. I'm pretty sure I'm going to see that a second time because it was just like pure joy. Yeah, I mean, we are not music biopic people to say the least. And uh, I thought Rocketman was excellent. It was just absolutely joyous. Yes. I highly recommend it. It was really fun to see both of those movies this weekend and be like, I love mainstream entertainment. Like, <laughs> fantastic. <laughs> Next week, we will also be talking about a big, big film. The last of its kind, Dark Phoenix. R.I.P. the X-Men. Yes, this film, which may as well not be coming out, the amount of publicity they're doing for it. <laughs> yep, and I think it's going to be bad, and that's okay. But the thing about, the thing, Morgan, the thing that I think we can both agree is, can an X-Men movie, technically speaking, be quote-unquote bad? Can it be bad? That is the question. Will I enjoy it? Uh, yes. It <laughs> doesn't matter how bad it is, I will still enjoy it. So, Yeah. They showed the preview for this before Rocket Man, and my I was there with a friend of mine who is 
like not a nerd, but loves the X-Men. And even she was like, this looks terrible. And I was like, I'll be there. Like, I'm seeing it. The, the important weekend. thing to remember about this movie is that the average age of Jennifer Lawrence, James McAvoy, and Michael Fassbender's characters in this film is about 61. <laughs> that is a very key piece of information to remember. Oh my God. Yeah. <laughs> Can't wait. They also had to change the ending because... Yes, they had to refilm the whole of the ending. Because it was too similar to another film, probably Captain Marvel. Yeah. Fucking love the X-Men. But yeah, check in next week for that. And on our Patreon for our Rocketman minisode, you can find that at uh, patreon.com slash overinvestedpodcast. Uh, we would also greatly appreciate it if you could leave a rating or review wherever you on iTunes or wherever you listen uh, to your podcasts. We would really appreciate it. Gavia, where can our listeners find you and your work online? Yeah, you can find my writing on The Daily Dot and you can find me on Twitter at hello underscore Taylor. And I am on Twitter at ML Davies. The podcast is on Twitter at Overinvested Pod. We are also on Tumblr at Overinvested Podcast and our website is overinvestedpodcast.com. Thanks. Bye.